Welcome to Walking in Faith with Pastor Rob Currington. This podcast is dedicated to helping develop lifelong seekers of the kingdom of God. Each week, Pastor Rob helps bring God's message for living to those seeking a richer and more Christ-filled life. Now let's join Pastor Rob as he shares this week's message. Genesis chapter 1 as we continue in the book of Genesis. Last week we looked at the creation of all things as we saw that God creates from nothing. God creates by His Word. He creates excellence and He creates for His glory. And as He does so in the creation, He displays His character to the world He created as he displays his holiness in creating a good universe, God displayed his mercy in creating a sustaining universe and his sovereignty in creating a universe for his glory. And we saw that our obedience or our response to that God is to, get, is to celebrate and worship a creative God who is intelligent, imaginative, and complex. As we continue today, though, in the, gener- in the Genesis account, we are now going to run into what we call another problem. The problem today is that of Adam and Eve, the creation of man. Is it real? Is it true? Kim Ham, this is someone that, uh, that Michelle had mentioned last week, from Answers in Genesis writes that the question of whether man was specifically, or excuse me, specially created directly from the hand of God or whether he evolved from an ape-like creature has long been a controversial issue, and today that is still the case. In today's secular culture, it is common to view the biblical history of Adam as a story or as a myth or a parable. This is now also becoming the standard interpretation, believe it or not, for many within the evangelical community. There are many that have now said that Adam cannot be real. There is a tension between what we call evolution and creationism. Ken Ham continues to say that evolutionists often call early humans cavemen. You've all seen it in uh, movies, commercials, even in Geico. You know, you have the cavemen. Including what they describe as primitive people who lived in caves during the ice ages. However, that's not the Genesis account. So what do we do? How do we resolve this? Increasingly, he writes, even some theologians are beginning to question whether or not the first humans, Adam and Eve, were actually real people. And now they argue instead that primitive cavemen are truly our actual ancestors. For me, I believe evolution is so popular with the world because they desire to make themselves into gods. And evolution does that. The psalmist warns us and calls us to worship God in Psalms 103 with this phrase, Know that the Lord, He is God. Anytime you hear that phrase, that he is God, that's an automatic amen, whether I pause or not. So let's try that once again. Know that the Lord, he is God. 
It is He who has made us and not we ourselves. Wow. And it seems like many evangelical biblical scholars from the ivory towers of seminary down to the pews have made God in their image. And evolution is the answer to that. The Genesis story continues in chapter 1 and chapter 2 by telling us where we came from and how we get there. Remember, Genesis is a story. It's the beginning. The whole Bible is a story, and we are still in the first chapter called Creation. Some people, I should make you aware, have imagined that there's a contradiction between chapter 1 and chapter 2 of Genesis. They complain that there are two creation accounts in those chapters. However, that's not true. In Genesis 1, 1 through verse 20, uh, through uh, chapter 2, verse 3, that gives us a chronological order of creation. This is what I did on day 1. This is what I did on day two through day seven. While the rest of Genesis chapter two, four through uh, the rest of the end of the chapter, gives us a descriptive account. It focuses mainly on what God did on the sixth day. For on the sixth day, God created his crowning achievement. Hence why the title is the crowning achievement of creation, as we see man is a special creation of God. Father, I pray that you now would come and join with us as we are now informed by your scripture. What does your word say about man? This is important. This is under attack. This is something that we need to get a hold of. So as you inform us by your word, I pray that your Holy Spirit begin to transform our hearts and our minds to think biblically. Help us to answer the very difficult questions, and there is a real tension out there today. So I pray that you would open up our hearts and minds to receive what you have, fill up what's lacking in in my study, in my presentation, and anything that I do, and may you be glorified. We pray this in the name of your Son, Jesus. In Genesis, we've been talking about how God has been displaying his character. The last two weeks, we saw how God displayed his character through the world he created. And if you're someone who likes to take notes, you're going to want to get this, because for today and next week, we're going to talk about how God displays his character through the man that he created. And we're going to give you four ways in which God displayed his character. Take your Bibles, if you would, and look at Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. In Genesis chapter 1, we read, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. What we see here for the first point, if you're taking notes, is God displays his holiness 
and created a man in his image. And when he looked and said it was good, he created man in his, whole, in, in his own image, and in a way, displaying his image. God, I need to point this out, that God did not uh, create us or need us for fellowship. Many times we think, well, why did God create us? And we say, oh, he created us so he could have fellowship. But to say something like that and to think something like that would mean that God was not complete, that God was not whole within the Trinity. We cannot, God does not look at us and say, oh, you complete me. God was perfect, yet he created us. did not need us for fellowship. Like the rest of creation, God created us in order for us to glorify him. The Bible says that we are made in the image of God. It means that man is like God and represents God. And that's very important, for that's truly what the words mean. Many people have debated over the years, well, how are we made in our image? And you could probably take ten scholars and probably get about eight to nine different types of answers. But really what it means is we are made like him. We're similar to him. It's not that we are the exact representation where we see that there is only one exact representation, and that's found in Colossians chapter 1. It says, and he, and Jesus was the uh, visible image of an invisible God. You and I are not a visible image of an invisible God. You and I are similar. We are like him. It means that man is like God and represents God. It means similar, not identical. It could be translated like this. Let us make man to be like us and to represent us. Now some of you might be stopping and saying, wait a second, what is this let us make man in our image? Did you catch those, by the way? Who is he talking to? Many might say, well, he must have been talking to the angels. But we see that the angels in Scripture had no play in creation. They were not part of creation. Now they sing and dance and glorify God as they viewed creation, but they were not part of the creative act. In here we get a glimpse, remember scripture is progressive, we get a glimpse of a triune God. And we said, make us like in our image. I do want to give you some types of ways in which we are like God, we are similar to God. And there's some aspects of being made in the image of God. For it's only of man does it say they were made in the image? They were similar, they were like. So how are we different than the animals and the plants and all of us other creation? I want to give you two, four, five of them right here. I didn't number them, I had to do that in my head real quick. I'm getting better at that. The first one I want to get is we have a moral sense of wrong and right. You and I as humans, we like we are like God in which we have an attribute of knowing what's wrong or right. We have a moral sense. We also have a spiritual commune with God. It's only man that can make food and, and look at it and then look their move their eyes and their heart to heavens and worship God. The animals do not do so. There's no spiritual commune with God. We're also like God in the fact that we have a mental reason. We can think. We have intellect. Again, there's another a picture that they picture man as being so primitive that he, that he didn't know what fire was. He couldn't make a wheel. He probably couldn't talk. He just grunted. 
His way of dating was taking a club and hitting a woman over the head, pulling her by the hair back to the cave. But yet, as we'll see next week, man was intelligent enough to be able to look at the animals, describe them, give them names and attributes, and even realize that he was alone. We're also made in the image of God. We are like and similar to him. Is that we're relational. We can we we desire deeper community. We're able to relate to one another. Another aspect of being made in the image in which we're similar but not like God is that the physical senses. It's not as if God has a hand. That's another misnomer. Many people think, well, God must have a hand. He must have eyes. He must have ears. For the Bible depicts him as such. We hear the hand of the hand of the Lord or God sees. But he is a spirit. But yet in us, he gave us a, a corporate being, a corporal being. But like God, we have senses in which we can experience the world around us similar to the way God does. We can discover, we can enjoy life and the world more than any other creatures that he created. But here's a more big point that we need to go on. As we say, God displays his holiness by creating us in his image. We'll see in two weeks that we fallen from that state, but let's make a point that's clear. Even in our fallen state, we still are in the image of God. And I would use that point as that's important as we go on to love our neighbor as ourselves, is that we recognize that we too and our brothers and sisters, even those are enemies. Why do we pray? Why do we why do we love them instead? Because they're made in the image of God. So the first thing we see is that God is displaying his character of holiness by creating us in his image. And he says, you are like us. You are similar to us. We are going to give you some attributes that are like us, that are different from all of creation. The second way that God displays his character is by displaying his mercy in creating and providing a sustaining environment for us to live in. Look at Genesis chapter 1. And let's continue in verse 28. And God blessed them. God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air and over every living thing that moves over the, on the earth. Verse 29. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. We see a great providential God. He goes on in verse 30, And to every beast of the, uh, of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. God saw everything that he made. Behold, it was good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. Conclusion. God displayed his mercy by creating and providing a sustaining environment for us to live in. He didn't just throw us in this little bubble and says, make do, do your best. God shows mercy. Even knowing that we were going to fail, God provides his mercy by providing. As reading that, you might have seen the word subdued. Elsewhere, it means to bring a people or a land in subjection so that it will yield service to one subduing it. Here, the idea 
is that man and women are man and woman are to make the earth's resources beneficial for themselves. All things I have given to you, use it for your good, which implies that they're going to investigate and develop the earth's resources to make them useful for humans. This command provides a foundation for wise scientific and technological development. God says, here it is. It is yours. Subdue it. Dominion, I've given everything that you need. You will thrive here. You'll be able to produce here. The third thing we see is God displays his sovereignty by making man his representative. For it is God who spoke, and all creation comes. God says, this is mine. Yet God shows his sovereignty by making man his representative. Look at Genesis chapter 2 as we skip the next few verses. Look at verse 5 of chapter 2. The writer of Genesis continues when he says, no bush of the field, When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground. And a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for the food. Continuing the mercy of God here, the tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Again, God shows his sovereignty by taking his authority and placing it and give it to the man. Also in this verse, just for those who like a lighthearted moment, we see the first recorded case of CPR. As God breathed, God gave into his nostrils and gave him life. What we see here is that man is more than just some part of an evolutionary chart. It's not some, I just read something the other day where, where the man came from squirrels. No, it's either squirrels or apes or some type of fish and all types of things, and we just fall somewhere in here. But here, the creation account of Genesis says that man was personally fashioned by God. God did it with his hands, and man was a special creation of God, different from all others. We find this in Psalms 139, where David writes, For you formed my inward parts, you knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book was written every one of them, the days that were formed, me, formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. We are a special creation different from all others. We're personally fashioned by God. And what a great note for you and I as we see that we're, we're something more than just random chance of molecules that just somehow in some way evolved into who we are today. Not only does God display his sovereignty by making us personally, but also by making his representative. For what's the purpose of specially creating in man, of especially breathing into him life, was to glorify God by representing him 
on the earth. Look at verse 10 as we continue. He now describes this beautiful garden. He says, A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is Pashon, the one that flowed around the world or whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. The gold of that land is good. Bedellium and oxenstone are there. The name of the second river is Gahon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. And the Lord God, this is important, verse 15, the Lord God took the man and put it in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. Again, for many of us, for those of us who are very curious, we want to always ask, well, where was the land of Eden? And there's no end to the speculation of where the Garden of Eden. But again, I'm going to disappoint you here for a little bit because, to be honest, we really don't know. We can pretty much take a guess and say it was somewhere where the Tigris and Euphrates, the other two rivers, we no longer know. We don't know where they are. But again, Genesis' account is not to give us every little thing that we want to know. But what we see that it was a good piece of land. It was a land that was good. And in it, God says, I'm going to put you in this land, and I want you to work and keep it. I want you to cultivate this land, and I want you to protect, protect this land. As God's representative, human beings are to rule over every living thing on the earth. And I know that to some, that can be offensive. You mean you're to rule over the animals? You're to rule over the plants? That's obscene. We shouldn't have that. They should have equal rights. And we live in this world in which everything is to have equal rights. Even today in Switzerland, there's laws that are coming across to protect grass and to protect plants from being unduly plucked or cut. Why? Because everything's living. Man is just another one of the evolutionary uh, things that have evolved. But yet here we see that God says, no, there's a special rule that you have. These commands are not, however, a mandate to exploit the earth and its creatures, creatures to satisfy human uh, desires and human greed. I would agree with that. For the fact that Adam and Eve were in the image of God. And when God said it was good, he said it was good to work it and to keep it, to protect it, to cultivate it, to make it do what God had intended it to do. Obviously, on this side of the fall, we've fallen short of that. But this implies that God's expectation that human beings will use the earth wisely and to govern it with the same sense of responsibility and care that God has toward all of us. So as we see in this Genesis account, as we're working our way quickly through this, is it sees that God is displaying his character. He displays his holiness by creating us in his image. He displays his, uh, his mercy in creating and providing an environment in which we can not only live, but we can, we can thrive in. And he shows his, displays his sovereignty by putting man in the garden and saying, now work, keep it, be my man in that garden. Use it wisely. Rule and subdue over it. And then the fourth way he shows and displays his character in this passage is by displaying his judgment. He displays his judgment. Now that's one attribute of God, one part of his character that for the most part we 
totally reject. And many times I believe that's what pushes evolution and other gods so much. We don't want to think that we stand before a good, holy God. But here we see that God displays his judgment by holding man accountable when he says to work and to keep it. Look at Genesis chapter 2, verses 16. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not what? Well, let's do that again. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not. Thank you. For in the day that you eat of it, help me again, you shall surely die. Judgment. God's mercy, God's judgment. Without God's judgment, mercy has no meaning, does it? Many times we want to take all of God's mercy but throw His judgment out the window. We do the same thing with God's love and God's wrath. But again, without God's wrath, how could I ever know God's love? And without knowing God's love, how could I know His wrath? They both help inform us. They both help transform our heart attitudes towards a loving and wrathful God. In the same way, God says, I've created man in order to put him in that garden, but yet he is accountable. And let me tell you today, we too are still accountable to a holy God who has put us to be his representative here on earth. And so for many people when they say, but yeah, but does it answer all the evolutionary claims of evolution? Well, sorry, we're not going to find it. We had shared this two weeks ago. For many people, they want to take Genesis 1 and 2 and make it some type of apologetic defense. In reality, though you may use it for some of that, it's not its intention. The book of Genesis is to tell us that there is a God and to share with us who God is. From his special creation, his special revelation, we get to know him and who we are in relation. And so for you and I, we still live with that tension. How do we answer those who say that Adam and Eve we're not real. Can this biblical account be reliable? And in the end, does it really matter? That's what I want to share with you today. Not only the fact of who God is and what it displays about his character, but you and I are on the premises here of every generation faces this question. But I feel in many ways we are beginning to lose this battle. So I ask the question, were Adam and Eve real historical people? Simon Turpin writes that the debate over whether Adam was historical is ultimately a debate on whether or not we can trust the Scriptures clearly, what the Scriptures clearly teach. Excuse me. And I think that really comes down to the end result. If you and I cannot be certain of the beginning, then why would we be certain about the Scripture or what the Scripture teaches elsewhere. The uncertainty of truth is rampant in our culture, partly due to the influence of postmodernism, which is why many believe the unsure, or they believe that they're, or excuse me, many are unsure over Adam's uh, uh, historicity, and they believe that it's unimportant. 
even evangelical scholars are beginning to deny a real historical Adam. Let me read a quote from you. Jewish scholar Louis Jacobs observed that there's no doubt that until the 19th century, Adam and Eve were held to be historical figures, but with the discovery of the great age of the earth, many modern Jews and Gentiles have tended to read the story as a myth. In other words, how can we understand Adam and Eve in the, in the, in the, in the belief of evolution? In 2010, in a book called A New Kind of Christianity, McLaren, who's the writer, explicitly denies that the Bible reveals Adam as a historical figure. In his words, speaking of the Genesis account, he writes that it is patently obvious to me that these stories are not intended to be taken literally. This is the Christian teacher. Although it didn't used to be so obvious, I know it won't be so now for many of my readers. In other words, the tide is turning. Most people are believing us. Most people are understanding the argument. He says, it's also powerful, clear to me, that these non-literal stories are still to be taken seriously and mined for their rich meaning because they instill time-tested, multi-layered wisdom through deep, mythic language. So he says, there is some, there is some things that we can gather from it, but it's really just myth. It's no different than you and I reading of Hercules or Poseidon or any of the other mythology and say, let's learn some spiritual truth from them about how our world came to be and what has become. Unfortunately, today, some view Adam and Eve as a symbol for humankind. They weren't two real people. They're just a symbol. Or they re represent human potential as created by God or as an analogy for the origin of Israel. Really, Adam and Eve are just a symbol of Israel. Well, here's the question I have to ask. Why do so many biblical authorities abandon the creation account of Adam? Are you struggling with that today? Do you find yourself sometimes being made fun of, maybe when you're in school and evolution being taught, and they begin to, to ridicule the faith of, of Adam and Eve, of a one person or one two people being created and, and, and populating the whole world. I believe why so many are failing, so many are falling to this, is for respectability in the eyes of the world. It's for respectability. They seek to please men rather than God. But I want to share with you that not all have fallen. You and I need to take up this fight. Al Mohler, who's the president of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, wrote that the moment you say we have to abandon this theology in order to have respect of the world, you end up with neither biblical orthodoxy nor the respect of the world. And see, that's what it comes to. For those of you who believe in creation, the world says you're idiots. You're stupid. You're not intellectual. You're a fool. You cannot even uh, 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 have uh, a say into the intellectual matters of the world. 
For many Christians who are scientists, biology teachers, and so on and so forth, they find that their progress and their teaching abilities hit a wall, hit that glass ceiling, and find themselves ridiculed for what they believe. Moeller writes that the denial, listen to this, that the denial of a historical Adam means not only the rejection of clear biblical teaching, but also the denial of the biblical doctrine of the fall, leading to a very different way of telling the story of the Bible and the meaning of the gospel. In other words, he says, if you change Adam and Eve, it changes the whole story. If you cannot believe in a real Adam and Eve, how can you believe in a real Jesus? If you can't believe in the first Adam, how do you believe in the second Adam? The modern view of many theologians that Adam is a myth ultimately has nothing to do with the ambiguity, ambiguity of Scripture because the Bible clearly views Adam as a historical figure. Instead, it's driven by a desire to reconcile evolutionary thinking with the Bible. And that's where many people come in today. I'm not sure where you are in that thought. I'm not sure if you've ever really thought about it. I talked to my wife about this topic, and I asked her, I said, where do you struggle, if anything, with Adam and Eve? Is there any part of the story, any part of the account that you struggle with? And she says, you know, Rob, I never have. I guess I just don't think of it. I pointed out a few things, and I said, well, what about this and this? If you just were to think this through, this would be maybe problematic. How would we answer that? I said, you know what? I just believe it. And for many of us that grew up in church, that's how we've grown up. And we don't answer. Believe it. There's probably many of you that say, you know what? I don't even I don't even tackle the subject. I just believe it. There may be some of you that may be a little bit more curious, and you may say, well, yeah, how do we reconcile this? There may be some of you here that in your growing up, all you've learned is evolution. And you say, well, how do I reconcile the two? But what we see here is that the Bible says that Adam was the real figure. Adam is mentioned by name 30 times in nine different books of the Bible. He's mentioned by name at least 18 times in the first chapter of the Bible alone. And he's mentioned in at least four books of the Old Testament and five in the New Testament. Therefore, no one who believes the Bible is infallible can doubt that Adam and Eve were created as the first human being as a special act of God. To deny Adam is to deny Jesus Christ, as I said earlier. The third chapter of Luke lists the genealogy of Jesus beginning in verse 23. And it traces Jesus through history to show that his humanity came from Adam the Son of God. So to deny Adam is to deny Jesus Christ. And you say, Rob, this is all important, this is all great, you're filling up a lot of time, but why is this important? I get it, I believe it. But let me tell you, here's why it's important. Because if you and I are not convinced of Adam and Eve, if we're not ready to accept what God is telling us in Genesis, it affects the doctrine of sin. And we'll see that in a couple weeks. 
Because if Adam and Eve were not real, then was the fall a real moment? And if not, how about the doctrine of Christ again? How can I trust that Christ is real if Adam and Eve is not real? The same Bible that says uh, Christ was real, was a historical figure, so does the Bible say that Adam and Eve were true and real. It also affects the doctrine of salvation. If Adam and Eve are not real, then is the fall real? And if the fall isn't real, then do you and I truly need an atonement? Why are you here? You're good. Don't even go with God, just go. It has real world and real life applications for you and I. It's amazing to me how many evangelicals will say and question whether the Adam and Eve is true, but yet they believe the Bible is true when it comes to salvation. If you're trusting in Christ for salvation because of what the Bible says, then how can you doubt anything else? If one part of it is wrong, how do you trust anything else? Al Mohler writes this, and I'm close to an end here. He writes that the denial of a historical Adam and Eve as the first parents of all humanity and the solitary first human pair severs the link between Adam and Christ, which is so crucial to the gospel. He goes on to write, if we do not know how the story of the gospel begins, then we do not know what that story means. Make no mistake, a false start to the story produces a false grasp of the gospel. So are they real? The Bible tells them it is. It does not give us all the scientific and all the answers we would like. But again, Genesis is not written to give us every factual thing that you and I would desire. It is not written for us to give a, an apologetic defense. For in reality, that's not what the world needs. But they've already seen all of heaven and still declare that there is no God. It's a foolish and darkened heart. You and I need to understand that the Genesis is written so that we may understand who God is. And He's a God who displays His holiness and His creativity and His providential sovereign. A merciful judgment uh, character. It's shown even as He created us. But as we look at Scripture, we may say, okay, now I understand and I'll accept that they're real, but what does it mean for you and I? As God displays in Genesis His character, how should you and I respond? And that's the point that I want to get you to this morning. For this is the transformation. The rest was just information. Here's what this needs to do for you and I. Our response is to trust and obey what God has written. Even though it may not answer all our questions, He's called us to trust and obey. Even today, you and I are to continue God's design for man. We're to be His representative on earth. God is in, the, is in Genesis is in the mode of creation and blessing. God had a divine plan let us make. He had a divine pattern. Let's make him in the image of us. He says the purpose, the divine purpose, is to produce life and have dominion. He gives us a divine prohibition. Serve and obey. And then he gives us a divine prosperity. Be fruitful and multiply. And 
yet even in our fallen state, we can continue the task given to Adam and Eve. For we too are given the same command. It's given a little bit differently. You and I find that in Matthew chapter 28, where he says, All authority in heaven on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. In other words, be fruitful and multiply. I have created you. You are my representative on earth. Teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Today, as we as we look at the character of God, let it cause us to give rejoicing and glory to Him, and cause us to trust and obey in a way that Adam failed. Father, I thank you for this. I thank you for the story of Adam and Eve. For in it we understand our beginning. From it we can see who you are as you display your character. And Lord, I pray that that would cause us to glorify and to worship and to celebrate you. May it cause us to do the work, to work and to keep, to cultivate and to protect, to be fruitful and multiply. Father, firm and firm up our hearts and our minds, Lord, to hold on to your truth, even in the midst of the tension, in the midst of the unanswered questions we may have, may we trust and obey. We pray this in your name. We hope you have enjoyed this week's Walking in Faith podcast. We encourage you to share this podcast with others in order to help spread God's message to all those in need. If you have any questions or comments, we would love to hear from you. Email us at walkinginfaith at orangevilla.org. You can help us spread this podcast by writing a review at iTunes. And don't forget to visit us online at orangevilla.org. There you will find more information about our ministry, as well as share your thoughts, submit prayer requests, and find out how you can help others to grow in God's love. Until next week, may God bless you in everything you do.